0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Long River podcast. I'm Graham Rhodes, and I'm glad you could join me for these conversations on business and investing. Just a reminder before we begin that nothing discussed here today is investment advice and shouldn't be taken as such. With that said, please sit back and enjoy the show. I'm back from an extended hiatus and delighted to be joined by Ross Cameron and Cameron Robson of North Cape Capitals Emerging Markets Team. Cameron and I have swapped emails on the best companies in Asia and the biggest risks no one is talking about. So I'm really excited to have him and Ross on the podcast. Today's conversation will have three parts. First, why invest in emerging markets? Then, how the North Cape EM team has outperformed for almost 15 years. And finally, a case study discussing Tektronic Industries to bring it all together. Guys, Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thanks for having us. Great to be here.
0: Ross, why don't we begin by you telling us a little bit about North Cape, and in particular the North Cape Emerging Markets Fund where you guys both work.
1: So North Cape was founded in 2004 by four portfolio managers who'd all come uh, from big organizations and was founded very much as a reaction to some of the issues that trying to manage money butts up against when it's placed inside a big organization. So first and foremost is when you're a part of a large group, you're pushed to become what we call an asset gatherer. So the revenue model typically is to run more and more money under management, and that's how you grow the business. And as we know, scale is a tremendous headwind to performance. The bigger you are, the harder it is to to outperform the market. So North Cape was founded as a reaction to that. As a consequence, it is, and has always been 100% owned by current staff. We don't have a group in there pushing us to run more money. And all of our funds are uh, capped at a very conservative level of capacity where we feel absolutely confident we can generate exceptional performance. So the Emerging Markets Fund that Cameron and I uh, work on That's the only emerging markets fund that North Cape has, and it's the only emerging market product that North Cape will ever have. Uh, It's capped at a very conservative level of capacity. It's high conviction, and we think it's the optimal way uh, to manage money. In terms of my own interaction with North Cape, I joined in 2009. The Emerging Markets uh, Fund was uh, founded by Cameron and I, his colleague, Patrick Russell, about uh, a year before in 2008. And so I joined in 2009, having worked for a period before in Asian equities at Capital Partners. And I knew some of the original founders of North Cape and was attracted to this culture of focusing on performance and strong alignment with clients. And I've been a portfolio manager on this emerging markets product for over a decade now.
0: I've heard so many times that it's it's critical to get the structure of a fund management company right at the outset. And it sounds like North Cape really thought about that. It's, it's quite interesting. H- how about you, Cameron? How did you um, find your way onto the team?
2: Yeah, so I've been with North Cape since 2014. I knew Ross through various uh, interactions at company meeting conferences for a few years before that. I previously worked in equity research for Deutsche Bank in Malaysia and Singapore, went through the graduate program there, worked in a family office in Malaysia, But I've spent nearly my entire career focused on analyzing emerging markets companies.
0: Guys, I got to ask the the most basic question at the outset. What is the investment case for investing in emerging markets?
2: Emerging markets uh, comprise half of global GDP, two thirds of the global population, so they're they're too big to ignore. Uh, But most investors only allocate a small fraction of their investments uh, to the emerging markets which we think is disproportionate uh, to their importance and the opportunities that they offer. Within the universe of 24 emerging markets, there are a large number of companies that investors have overlooked, that are poorly covered, and this leads to frequent valuation mismatches in our experience. If you compare that to developed markets, there are many fund managers fishing in the same pond, but in emerging markets, we have a large pond with fewer fund managers, So we think this is a much better place to fish.
0: Large large pond indeed. Um, But how do you stay on top of 24 different countries, 24 different economies, 24 different styles of corporate culture? (laughs) How do you feel confident in what you're doing across that much breadth?
2: Sure, there's a lot to stay abreast of. We do have to filter out the noise. A lot happens on any given day, but only a fraction of it is actually important. And we try to focus on that. So on the company side, that's just focusing on the best of the best within EM and not being distracted by the low quality state owned uncompetitive businesses with poor ESG that make up the bulk of the index. And on the macro side, we focus on those emerging markets, which we see as most attractive from a sovereign risk perspective and avoiding and not wasting our time on the less attractive EMs.
0: Looking again at a very high level, if I just look at the, let's call it the S&P 500 or the MSCI US, and Cameron and I, you, you and I have talked about this. The forecast return on equity for that index is somewhere in the mid-20s. And if I compare that to the MSCI emerging market, the forecast return on equity there is somewhere in the low teens. That's a really big difference. What what do you think is behind that?
1: It's a very heterogeneous uh, collection of companies within this emerging market group and there's two two factors in particular that distort that return on capital uh, relative to the u.s. for example the first is uh, there are a large number of SOE state owned enterprises within the MSCI emerging markets index now I should say up front, it's very unusual for us to invest in SOE's we largely avoid them and you'll see why in a second the problem with the state owned enterprise, and this is the likes of Petrobras, uh, Chinese banks, arguably all Chinese companies, again, we'll get to that in a minute, uh, is that the sole focus on growing shareholder value that you see in the US is diluted by other goals employment, national GDP targets, strategic targets for the country. And so you get, whereas a US company is allocating capital. With the sole goal of of growing shareholder value in state-owned enterprises, you have other goals which dilute. So you're investing in projects that maybe don't make sense. So that's one distortion. If you take out the SOEs from the index, that average return on capital goes up. The other distortion to the emerging market index is the large weight to China. So China is, depending on which index you use, is around about a third of the emerging market index. And Chinese companies structurally earn a lower return on capital than the rest of emerging markets. And the reason is, very much linked to that first point, pretty much all companies in China are SOEs. Whether it says on the label, private company or not, ultimately engaging in projects that don't make sense from a shareholder value creation perspective. They only make sense in terms of hitting provincial GDP targets, provincial local government employment targets, and so on. And so that also biases the return on capital down. What I would say is if you remove those SOEs and you take out China, that return on equity for the Emerging Market Index comes up towards the US level. And in fact, if you look at the very best companies uh, in emerging markets, they're well above the levels that you see
0: in developed markets. It sounds like that dispersion makes for a stock picker's paradise, actually. And we're going to talk later about one of your favorite companies, but let's go back to North Cape for a second, because I'm really impressed by your record. You launched right as the storm was coming in 2008 and uh, you have outperformed very handily. So I'm keen to understand a bit more about your record and how you guys did it. You wrote in your ten-year review in 2018, that your aim has been to generate higher returns with less risk. How do you do it?
1: So the key metric that we look at, which indicates that we are executing in line with our long-term goals is downside market protection. So it's the proportion at which our fund declines when the index declines. And since inception, that's been just a little bit less than 50%, 0.5. So on average, since that inception date on the 1st of July, 2008, When the index has fallen 1%, we've, on average, fallen half of that. And when the index is up, we we generally perform in line with the index. So one of our underpinning philosophies that the key to long-term performance is protecting capital on the downside. You win by not losing. And so how do we do that? The first very important point for emerging markets is you're absolutely right. You've got this tremendous universe, 26 countries. Uh, half of uh, a global GDP, almost two thirds of global population. Stock pickers paradise, exactly. But this is an asset class where you cannot be just a stock picker. You have to get your country selection right. Now, the classic recent example of this is Russia. You could have been the greatest stock picker in history. Let's imagine a stock picker who every year in the last five years, picked the single best Russian stock, and put hundred percent of their capital into that stock. The result as of this year is you lost all your capital, right? All of your capital. And we see the same dynamic play out in other markets like Turkey. Turkey has been a stock picker's paradise, but all of that has been confiscated by declines in the Turkish lira, which has just consistently declined over time. So in order to get long-term performance, right, to protect capital, first of all, you've got to be in the right markets. And so we take a very high conviction approach to the countries we invest in. Right now, uh, we have nothing in South Africa. We have nothing in Turkey. We have nothing in Colombia. We're very happy to avoid markets where we think investors are not properly compensated, Uh, for the sovereign risk. China, 30% of the index, and it's barely represented in our portfolio. We remain bears on China. We had nothing in Russia for the past decade. So when this all unraveled this year, again, we weren't exposed. So that's the first part of that higher returns with less risk. It's being in the right markets. And then the second part of the the equation is being in the right companies and how do we define the kind of companies we're looking for first of all we like companies that don't have much debt most of the companies we invest in have net cash balance sheets the reason is when you have an exogenous shock in developed markets the cost of refinancing debt goes up but when you have an exogenous shock in emerging markets often you can't refinance that debt at all credit markets close in emerging markets because A lot of emerging markets, the the domestic credit market, the domestic banking system is immature. And so these companies are reliant on offshore funding, which just completely uh, dries up when you have an exogenous shock. And so those companies with debt and exogenous shock are forced to sell assets or raise equity at a big discount and dilute shareholders. So very important in emerging markets to avoid companies with lots of debt. The second thing in terms of the companies we look for we're looking for structural growth. I think most investors look to invest in emerging markets because of these structural tailwinds like urbanization, infrastructure, technology, healthcare, long multi-decade tailwinds that drive shareholder value creation. But the problem is that's not what you get with the index. When you invest in the index, you owning you end up owning Chinese banks, Chinese tech, Petrobras, as I've said previously, Russian oil and gas and so on, so we're very focused on sectors like infrastructure, healthcare, technology, consumer staples, telecommunications, these structural growth sectors. And as a consequence, we, we've consistently been underweight cyclical sectors like materials, energy, and so on. And that also gives us that lower risk, that, that to downside protection. So I should just conclude by saying that the way we define risk is not risk around a benchmark, so many of our peers get pulled into that trap where they think risk is the risk of deviating from an artificial benchmark. In fact, risk is the risk of permanent capital loss. That is the risk that we're focused on, is capital protection.
0: Okay, so we've heard a lot of negative examples there. And just looking at the last decade in review, not being... (laughs) Um, in China, certainly not being in Russia has really helped you guys. But why don't you help us understand more about these the macro filter that you use by sharing a few positive examples?
1: Well, I'll talk about South Korea. Uh, so South Korea right now, we've just had an election. The new president, Yoon, is very much a f- fan of free markets. He has said several times that one of his heroes is Milton Friedman, the famous libertarian free market economist. He's already proposed a number of measures to improve shareholder protection in South Korea, to remove some of the distortions in government, in the labor market that were holding South Korea back. And if you get this, and going back to your previous point, we did talk about some negative examples, but the flip side of the coin is if you get the right markets, then all of those sovereign, those country dynamics turn into a tailwind. So South Korea, we think, under Yoon is likely to re-rate up as a market. And over a three to five year view, we think also the currency is likely to perform strongly as well. The currency will outperform. So then you get the double tailwind of an equity market that's re-rating and also a currency. So you're making money on the currency as well as the stocks. And so that's the flip side of the coin. If you pick markets when they're turning a corner, as we think South Korea is today, and by the way, South Korea has some of the best companies in the world. Samsung Electronics has the highest R and D budget of any company in the world. Secondly, if you think about technological prowess, DRAM is probably this is direct random access memory, which is in your smartphone, it's in your laptop, it's in your PC. This is probably right now the height of of human engineering it's about the hardest most difficult thing that that we as humanity have created technologically which is evidenced in the fact that there are only three companies in the world that can make leading edge dram now interestingly of those three companies in the world that can make the very most technologically advanced dram two are in south korea samsung uh, and sk hynix and the other one is micron in the us so two of the three most technologically advanced companies in the world are already in emerging markets you see the same dynamic by the way in logic absolutely the leading player in logic chips is no longer intel it's TSMC in taiwan they're at the leading node which is a measure of the density of the chips and intel is actually now
2: a laggard so india is another positive macro story for us arguably like Korea, one of our favourite emerging markets, largest weighting in the fund. Prime Minister Modi, for his critics, has made reasonably pro reasonable progress on reform, and he should get another term and the chance to continue those reforms in 2024. India is just unrivalled in EM for its demographics, the early stage of its development, uh, which provides a huge addressable market for Indian companies. Uh, For example, just one in every 22 Indians owns a car, and this compares to nearly one car per capita in the US, Australia, and New Zealand. So this provides an enormous market opportunity and structural growth opportunity for our holding Maruti Suzuki, which has close to 50% share of the Indian car market.
0: If you go back to the example of memory and, and logic even, If I understand the the history of those correctly, they were largely built with state support. And now we're excited that a guy's come in into South Korea who is a fan of Milton Friedman. So it sounds like a, a huge change there. Do you see that kind of reform as being a tailwind? Or do you understand that as being like, I don't know, part of the complexity and the fabric of emerging markets that we have quite radical shifts in policy or approach from one decade to the next or from one administration to the next?
1: I think there's a good argument that in the early stages of economic development in a country, so this is when you're going from a relatively low level of GDP per capita to about middle income level, having strong state support is actually very beneficial. And so we've seen that play out in China. So in the early stages where you're really just trying to remove inefficiencies and you're trying to basically just catch-up, it's catch-up growth, then having a strong estate system, which actually plays a role in capital allocation, really helps. And that's exactly, as you said, that's exactly what happened in those sectors in South Korea and Taiwan. But I think once you get to middle income level, and I think this is the issue facing China now, then to get to the next level, the level of GDP per capita that South Korea is now entering, you actually need a much freer system. You need a system where innovation can flourish. And so, you know, South Korea and Taiwan have had a. And Japan is another example of this. If you look at Japan's development, the state uh, has become less hands on over time. And that's helped Japanese companies reach, uh, you know, or Japan reach a high level of GDP per capita. In the early stages, the state helps rapidly build out infrastructure, arguably at a low level of GDP per capita faster than a liberal free market system can. But once you get to the the level where you need to actually innovate and you're competing on a global stage, there's no longer any catch-up growth available, then I think a, a, a free market system wins. So that's helped South Korea and Taiwan. But I think this is an issue for China for the next 10 or 20 years. It remains a big unknown whether China can escape the middle income trap and actually become a world leader. A conspicuous example is, whereas South Korea, Taiwan, even Brazil and India, all of these countries have produced global winners, companies that in their sector are the undisputed global leader. China has yet to do that. It's very difficult and conspicuous for a country which is already the second biggest economy in the world, on some measures has already overtaken the size of the US economy, and yet has not produced a true global winner. Sure, there are big Chinese companies, Alibaba, Tencent, but they're really only competitive in the domestic market. Now that's very different from the experience of Japan, when Japan got to the same level of development that China currently is in, it already had global winning companies, Toyota being a classic example. Uh, So China, the jury is out whether that system of heavy government intervention can actually produce globally competitive, innovative companies.
0: I want to ask about price and how important price is. So one of the things that you mentioned was that North Cape tends to shy away from cyclical industries, oil and gas, for example. But last year, it seemed like there was an anti-bubble almost in oil and gas. As tech stocks were exploding, these companies were really punished and their valuations fell to silly low levels in hindsight, of course. Is price enough to draw you in or do you think like the risks that you talked about earlier are so great that they can't be compensated with a low price?
2: We struggle with energy and mining companies in emerging markets, because in addition to taking risks on the price of commodities and the fortunes of an individual company in terms of their prospecting and exploration, in emerging markets you take on extra risks in that the government might expropriate your assets or introduce arbitrary taxes or export restrictions like we've seen in Indonesia recently. Energy and mining companies really don't typically have the high returns on capital, the enduring predictable earnings, the strong ESG that we look for. So they simply don't uh, fit into our investment framework almost regardless of the price. I would just add,
1: absolutely price is very important. And this is it's fundamental to our philosophy that every company has an intrinsic value and the market value kind of jumps around that intrinsic value so we want to buy companies where there's a margin of safety so we're if the intrinsic value is a dollar we want to buy these companies where they're trading at 70 cents in the dollar and so the intrinsic value it's impossible to determine that with a high degree of accuracy and again another mistake that people make is have a point value no one has a crystal ball but what we want to do is Determine the values
2: of this company under a wide range of possible scenarios and buy that
1: company where, under most possible outcomes, it looks cheap. Uh, So absolutely, we don't ever buy a company just because of growth or the quality of the company. We need to buy these companies when they're trading at a discount uh, to intrinsic value.
0: I think one of the other things that North Cape did very early was introducing an ESG filter into the way you look at your countries and your companies. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey? Was it even called ESG when you started?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question because ESG's become a buzzword and there's a lot of people who are late to this and use it as a, a marketing slogan rather than something that actually drives outcomes. And many of our competitors have a separate ESG department, separate from the portfolio manager. And we think that's a problem. ESG has to be fundamentally integrated into the approach. Why does it matter? Obviously, because it's philosophically the right thing to do. But more importantly, in a sense, in emerging markets, historically, you've been paid for investing in high quality ESG companies. So if you look at the performance of the best bucket of ESG companies, the top tier, they've outperformed the broader market by 50% since the GFC. And the reason is because if you ESG, as we understand it, is really, again, coming back to the idea of the risk of uh, permanent capital loss, corporate governance blow up, poor behavior in an environmental sense, all of these things we think ultimately incur financial penalties. So corporate governance is a very direct way to see that. It's eventually, if, if, if there's fraud or poor behavior, you'll pay a price as a shareholder. But even poor social or environmental behavior, increasingly, we think that will be penalized. And so for us, it's about finding the very best companies in terms of this behavior in, in order that we can avoid capital loss.
0: So I think ESG is never... Black and white, how do you come to terms with the complexity or the compromises that you see in real life? You mentioned Samsung Electronics before, Ross. Like that's a group with arguably a very murky history and one which hasn't treated shareholders well. But on the other hand, I could argue that kind of bad corporate governance has been one of Samsung's competitive advantages in that it's allowed the group to invest very heavily in the long term over many decades. Yeah, how do you guys think about the gray of ESG? In emerging markets and everything that lies in between.
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. So the first thing is, we have the luxury. So we're investing in twenty-six countries, huge universe that we spoke about earlier, and our portfolio uh, is capped at forty stocks. So we're very high conviction. So it gives us the luxury of setting the bar for ESG for the kind of companies that we'll invest in very high, right? The hurdle that these companies have to pass to come onto our list because we're only looking uh, for the very best companies in emerging markets. I see lots of emerging market funds because, going back to the very first conversation we had, because they're in groups that won't cap their emerging market fund at six or seven billion, as ours is capped, they want to run a $20 billion emerging markets fund because they've got to feed external shareholders. So they end up owning 300 stock portfolios, big, broad portfolios. And that means they have to go down the quality curve in terms of ESG and they end up owning companies that they really don't have high conviction in. So that's the first point, we can set the hurdle rate very high. Samsung is a good example because when Samsung Electronics, when we first did a report on it, it actually failed our ESG process. So for a long time, we, we were unable to own Samsung Electronics. But then actually coinciding with the Moon administration in South Korea, so about five years ago, we relooked at Samsung Electronics because the company implemented a number of changes around dividend policy, share buybacks, and so on, addressing some of those those issues that you mentioned in terms of minority shareholders. Also, the group, in terms of Samsung Group, we think has improved somewhat, so, so that structure is is becoming more transparent, shareholder minority rights are being protected, and that's an ongoing process, and so Samsung having failed that ESG process when the situation changed, we did another report and updated it and, and then it met the quality standards. So, uh, emerging markets are dynamic and uh, a leopard can uh, you know, change its spots, so to speak. Companies can
2: fundamentally change their behavior. And uh, just one point I'd add is ultimately ESG analysis is a judgment call. Uh, we've found some companies score quite poorly on ESG through third-party providers like Sustainalytics and MSCI, but on our own more detailed analysis, uh, we find that their ESG practices aren't actually that bad. We feel comfortable with them and the risks. And we also believe that we can trust management, which is often one of the most important ESG questions you have to truly ask yourself.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more. If I can summarize, ESG sounds like it began as a risk management tool for you guys. But do you ever see it, I don't know, as another tailwind? For example, the Chinese government is really emphasizing sustainable, clean energy and promoting companies in that that industry. Is is that something that you guys look for as an investment trend? Or again, do you shy away from that kind of thematic?
1: No, we absolutely do. So we do own a, a battery company in the portfolio. Uh, for exactly this reason and uh, we have large exposure through a, a company that's disrupting the tool industry and so absolutely if we uncover a, a global trend uh, related to sustainability we'll look to companies that are positively exposed to that
0: I'm keen to hear like you mentioned before your portfolio is constructed with a mix of looking at the country risks, then trying to find the best companies within the countries you like You've mentioned, I think, 30 to 40 stocks. How do you think about diversification, for example, within your weightings, within sectors? Do you have maximum weights, that kind of thing? Ross, if you could just talk to us a little bit about North Cape's philosophy when it comes to portfolio management.
1: All of North Cape's funds are multi-portfolio manager uh, structures. So I'm one of four uh, PMs on the emerging markets strategy. We each run a globally EM portfolio, and the client receives the um, the composite of those four portfolios. There is really good reasons we think for structuring a business like that. The first is employee turnover. So, if you look at the emerging markets team at North Cape, it's grown over time in terms of personnel, and in fact, we're looking to add another couple of people over the next twelve to eighteen months. But nobody's ever left the investment team. We've had very good Uh, staff retention. And that's important because lots of funds management businesses, not just in emerging markets, but but in in any asset class, you see a track record that looks attractive, but the team at the business today may not be the team that generated that track record. And really, we talk a lot about process, but but this is a a, a people business. The people in the team are very important. So multi-PM is a good way to keep people in the business, your best people. Now, The other benefit is in terms of portfolio construction, what it means is for a stock to become a big part of the aggregate portfolio, the composite portfolio, each of the four PMs has to own it in a big way. If I own a stock to 8% in my portfolio, but the other three portfolio managers don't have conviction, let's say they don't own it, an unusual scenario, but just to make the maths easy, then it's 8% in my slice, and zero percent in the other three portfolio managers it only becomes two percent of the aggregate client portfolio so it's a very good risk management tool it means you're getting independent overlays in order for a stock to become a big position in the portfolio now in terms of diversification so we have very strict portfolio guidelines that are really trying to strike a balance between uh, diversification but also high conviction. So we're a very we're a high conviction manager, but we do want to retain diversification. So we have maximum caps on sector, on country. We don't run a lot of cash, we're fully invested, and we're very strict on the liquidity of the companies that we invest in. We're only looking for companies uh, that trade, really trade 10 million US or more a day. Although in exceptional circumstances we can go lower than that. And the other thing I wanted to address is that country selection. So I think instinctively, people knew that Russia was riskier than South Korea. But they, you know, that was a gut sense and ins- instinct. And there wasn't really a clear way uh, for most managers to express that in the portfolio. Maybe they have a lower rate Russia, but they tend to just toggle around the benchmark. What we've done, and this has been built and refined over the 14 years since since inception is for every single country in emerging markets we have a bespoke North Cape discount rate, which reflects those sovereign risks. So Russia, our discount rate was more than 20%. And by the way, our discount rate for China is up near 20% as well. So if you just plug in the China bond rate and add an equity risk premium to that, we think you're understating the risks of China given the closed capital account given the the lack of rule of law and so on. So we spend a lot of time developing these country discount rates and they're dynamic. Uh, when we have an election like South Korea this year, of course, a new government changes the risk dynamic of the country. And so we adjust that discount, which we then use in our models. So it's a really good way of taking out the kind of gut feel that many people have and making it a kind of more objective way to get the right country representation in the portfolio. If you have the same company in South Korea and China, for argument's sake, an identical company, we're discounting the cash flows in the model for the South Korean company at around 10%, whereas China, we're discounting the cash flows around 20%. So what it means is if you say, the Chinese market's trading on 12 times earnings, it's cheap, our model would say, no, China should trade on seven times earnings.
0: That's a really high bar. But I got to say, I love the objectivity of that process, and especially the way that you could implement that across a team and across time. One, One question I had, there's this study that came out a couple of years ago by an academic named Henrik Bessenbinder, who studied, I think, US markets and realized that most of the gains over many decades came from just a handful of companies. And his conclusion was that investors, portfolio managers should let their winners run. Do you guys employ a similar approach at North Cape? Or do you think it's better risk management to take money off the table when positions get too big?
1: So we have a a very strict cap at 10% of the portfolio. So when a stock becomes 10% of the aggregate portfolio, we sell. That's a hard constraint. And so that has become an issue in the past for our best performers. We do sell at 10%. You're still going to have a very large exposure to the company, but potentially relative to just letting it run and become 20% of your portfolio, you you could leave some money on the table. But we think that's going back to that striking a balance between high conviction and diversification. We think 10% is about as large as you ever want to go in a single company. We don't subscribe to the idea that there is a point value for companies because no one has a crystal ball and models are really about trying to understand valuation sensitivities so you know what happens when a company is really run and performed we just tend to back solve our dcf to see what the dcf is implying what kind of assumptions you need to get to the current share price and if those assumptions look very aggressive then that will be a catalyst for us to sell it i just add to that but the best companies we want to own them forever that's ideal for us our average holding period is more than three years. The longer that we can own a company, and it's still, you know, trading, you know, below intrinsic value because it's creating shareholder value creation, all the better. So if you look at Bank Central Asia, uh, that's been in the portfolio since 2010. So coming up to uh, 12 years, and it's just been a wonderful long-term performer. And I hope uh, that we'll still own it in 10 years' time, and we'll continue to have exposure to that
0: wonderful. Uh, long-term financial penetration story in Indonesia. And given the volatility that is a characteristic of emerging markets, do you trade around your positions?
1: Yeah, for sure. So that position has varied between one and a half percent of the aggregate portfolio to currently uh, a much larger position. So close to 6%. So depending on that discount to intrinsic. So when that discount to intrinsic value narrows, we reduce the position, but when that discount to intrinsic opens up and we see more value there, then we'll add to the position. So we do vary the position size uh, very actively.
0: We're going to bring all of this to life now in the final part of the conversation by talking about a case study of one of, I think, your favorite companies, Tektronic Industries. So This is quite a special company because although it's listed in Hong Kong, if I understand correctly, manufacturers in China, its largest markets are in North America. So it doesn't sound like a typical emerging markets company at all. Ross, why don't you tell us a little bit about Tektronic, how you found it and why you like it?
1: So first of all, we're looking for companies that have a sustainable competitive advantage. Okay. So we've already talked about that structural growth. Uh, But on top of that, we want companies that have a sustainable competitive advantage. To use some Buffett terminology, they have an economic moat, something that protects their business. And the clearest manifestation we think of a sustainable competitive advantage is a long track record of earning high returns on capital. Because as soon as you start earning above your cost of capital, you attract competition into the industry. And they try and bid away that return on capital, uh, that excess economic profit. And so if you have a long history of consistently above your cost of capital, there's something there that's protecting your ability to earn economic profit and drive shareholder value creation. And so the very first thing that we look for when we're trying to find companies in emerging markets is companies that have a long history of earning high returns, high ROE, high ROIC. And that's how Tektronic we first found it. I also, by the way, love companies that have obscure names. Here, this is a little bit copying Peter Lynch. I don't know, you've probably read one up on Wall Street. One of his favorite companies was Service Corp, because it had a boring name. That's how that's how he's originally attracted to it, the US funeral business. So I also love companies that have a boring name. If this was called Global Tool Innovation Corp probably be less attractive than than Tektronic, which doesn't really give much away. So that was was the first uh, way that we found the business. And then after that screen, and we got to know the company, did meetings with the company, we began to uncover just what a a wonderful business it is.
0: Take us back to the basics. Who are they? What do they do? Where do they do it?
1: Yeah. So this is the world's leading tool company. Uh, They're number one globally in Pro Tools. So the Their main brand in Pro Tools is Milwaukee. That's the number one Pro tool brand in the US. In Europe, they use AEG brand. That's a very well-regarded Pro Tools brand in Europe. And they also are very strong in DIY as well. So outside of Japan, the Ryobi uh, brand is, is Tektronic. They also have a floor care business, Hoover. You might know of or Vax or Dirt Devil, these are all their brands, but really it's a Pro Tools brand. It is listed in Hong Kong, but it, it was founded uh, by a German family uh, who still retain uh, a, a big uh, stake in the business. They are very conservative. They don't have any economic interests other than Tektronic. They've been wonderful allocators of capital. There's a single class of shares, Something which you don't see all the time in the U S here, you have one class of shares, you're co-invested with the family that that founded the business. And so they have a great track record of not just making good acquisitions, but also turning down bad acquisitions. And you don't see that so much in companies that have professional management where they're just trying to run a bigger business. They've got a wonderful uh, chief executive officer, Joe Galley, who was actually COO of Amazon previously. But he also built the uh, DeWalt brand at uh, Stanley Black & Decker. Uh, he's one of the best uh, CEOs we think in the world today. So that's the kind of that's the overview of the company. The real appeal here is that the tool industry has changed more in the last decade or so than it did in the previous 50 years. It's undergone a massive change. What is the change? If we go back to the world of Corded tools, so these are tools that you plug in to a PowerPoint, or gas tools, petrol tools. Then if you looked at the average truck of a contractor, you'd have a a whole medley of different brands. There was no reason to own all the tools from the same brand. You might have a, a touch of brand loyalty, but really it was just what we would call best in class. So you would own the Makita nail gun, but then you'd own the Stanley Black & Decker drill, and so on. You could just pick and choose in each category for the winner. And so it meant the market share, although it was dominated by the leading tool brands, because this is a a business where there are barriers to entry. uh, Trust is very important. It's one reason why private brand has never really worked in the tool business, especially the pro segment, tools are money, right? A broken tool or even worse, an injury caused by a faulty tool, that's a serious loss of revenue. So pros only look for the established brands. All of the brands have been around for for, for many decades. So that's already an attractive feature. But then what we saw about a decade ago is the industry start to transition to lithium-ion rechargeable tools. So these tools are just objectively better than the legacy corded uh, and gas tools on a job site which is often poorly ventilated frankly the gas tools the petrol tools were always a major issue an ohs issue uh, for the the health and safety of uh, the people working on the job site also petrol tools get very hot again uh, a, a, a health and safety issue for the contractors if you're using corded tools, the issue is obviously you can trip on the cords. And also you don't necessarily have PowerPoints available. With lithium ion tools, lithium ion rechargeable tools, these are battery powered tools. You have no emissions at the job site. They're quieter than the legacy tools and they don't get hot. So they're just objectively better. Now, we've only had the technology, the battery technology in the last decade that's enabled these tools. Before that, um, you know, rechargeable tools were underpowered. Whereas now we have like Ryobi has a, a ride on lawnmower that runs on lithium ion rechargeable batteries. And you have all kinds like pneumatic hammers, very heavy duty pro tools that can run on lithium ion rechargeable batteries. So you had a technological shift that enabled these tools. So what was the fundamental thing that shifted this industry? As I said, more in the last 10 years than the last 50 years, it's the fact that the batteries are interoperable so if you buy a Milwaukee tool you have to buy a Milwaukee battery but that battery works on any Milwaukee tool the rechargeable battery the batteries are very costly what that means is for the first time ever in this industry you have a powerful network effect If you're a pro that has three Milwaukee tools and let's say you need to go and buy a nail gun to use that example again, you automatically walk to the Milwaukee section of Home Depot in the US because you already have the battery for your other three tools. If you want to buy a Makita nail gun, that means you have another battery that doesn't work with your existing tools. You have to have two networks on your truck. Uh, which is very costly because the batteries are costly. It's also costly in time because you turn up with the wrong battery, you can't recharge the tool. And most of these pros will turn up with a stack of batteries and they'll just run the tool until the battery runs out and plug in another. What you find now is when you look at the truck for a Makita user, it's almost all Makita tools. Certainly for the power tools, there's really no incentive to leave that network. It's costly to leave the network. And the more tools that you have, the more costly it is to leave the network. And what that means is Makita could come out, in fact, for example, with a nail gun that was 20% better than a Milwaukee nail gun and still not be able to attract customers from the Milwaukee network, because it's just too costly to have to go and buy another $300 battery just for the Makita tool when you already have your batteries for the existing network. Now that's very important because Tektronic is the first mover in lithium ion rechargeable tools. They were ahead of the curve in this because of two factors, better management and better ownership structure, and a history of innovation. They're the leaders in innovation in the tool space. And so you've got a situation now where you go, as I said, best in class in every single category, you'd have Makita would be strong in this, Stanley Black & Decker strong in that, Milwaukee strong in this, to a winner takes all dynamic. And that's exactly what we've seen. If we look at revenue growth, over the last couple of years, for example, Tektronic is growing more than twice as fast as the industry as a whole. They just continue to win share because of that network effect. And that's still, we think, poorly understood by the market. I mean, tool tool industry is very different from what it was 10 years ago, but the multiples and the valuation don't yet reflect that network effect. And that's why we think there's a real long-term opportunity here as the market slowly realizes that this industry
2: has changed forever.
0: I have so many questions. This sounds like a really fascinating company. What was an aha moment for you, like when you first realized the potential of lithium-ion batteries to change the way that this company in this industry would would work?
1: So I, when we first started looking at the company, I just every opportunity I, I had to talk to a, a tradesperson, I took that, and every tradesperson I spoke to. Their only complaint was, I want more of these tools, right? I wish there was a lithium-ion rechargeable leaf blower or a lithium-ion rechargeable mower because the the ones I'm using are so good. They're just superior in every way. And also by noting that these tradespeople, they would be in the network. You'd see the the truck turn up and it would be all Ryobi or all Milwaukee or all AEG. They just weren't buying tools outside the network and having conversations. Why don't you buy, why don't you buy a uh, a Makita for the next tool? And understanding that in these businesses, which generally, you know, run pretty low profit margins, efficiency is very important. And just how costly it is once you're in a network to leave that network.
0: So why doesn't the value there accrue with the, the battery producer? as opposed to like the end product. Is there some kind of like premium to the brand? Although you mentioned there are many brands out there in the market.
1: So the batteries uh, that uses a large number of battery suppliers and the battery cells themselves are somewhat commoditized. So there is a brand value for sure. But in terms of the interoperability of the battery and the tool, very important is the software and the tool. Uh, Tektronic is a big consumer of semiconductor chips which obviously is topical at the moment. Mm -hmm. You have to understand another advantage that Tektronix has relative to Makita or Stanley Black & Decker is this country, their company's history is as an OEM. It started as a manufacturer of tools for Stanley Black & Decker many decades ago in the 70s. And as a consequence, Tektronix maintained the know-how internally. It's the only tool company that manufactures all motors in-house so the motor the software that optimizes the motor battery connection uh, and the tool itself and that's all in-house tektronic in power tools doesn't use any external oems whereas the model for example for Stanley black and decker is to outsource a lot of their manufacturing so you've got a real manufacturing pedigree in here you've got that german family uh, very disciplined focused on manufacturing efficiency and continuous uh, improvement at a culture of manufacturing excellence, which is absent in the main competitor. And that's enabled Tektronic really to first innovate more quickly. And that's a big advantage of keeping the manufacturing know-how in-house and secondly, retain IP Uh, because that IP is not in the battery cell, as I said, which is a commodity, it's more in, in the brand and the integrated tool itself.
0: So it sounds like the batteries are commoditized, but there's some vertical integration there as well as the brands and now the network effect, which allows Tektronic to keep a lot of the value.
1: That's right. And Tektronic is, by the way, consistently adding more battery suppliers. We we spoke to the company recently and they're expecting to add two or three more battery suppliers over the next year or so. So it's uh, very deliberately helping to commoditize the battery industry by giving orders to new up and coming battery makers. And the auto industry will do the same thing, by the way. It's in all of the brand owners' interest to commoditize as much as possible the battery cell.
0: So I I think this is really cool because this isn't a typical emerging markets company, at least how people might think about it on the surface. So how do you as emerging markets analysts, how do you follow the North American housing market and kind of collect enough scuttlebutt there and enough information to feel like you've got a grasp of what's happening
2: so we obviously would listen in on the calls of home depot stanley black and decker tetronics other competitors we also have a global fund where they also cover home depot and our investors in the company and just broader research in terms of we wouldn't go into too much detail but we would track what's happening on, on the macro side and in, in the us and and the housing market but yeah, we, we think there's been a lot of focus recently on how tied Tektronic is to the U.S. housing cycle. And that's one of the reasons why it seems the stock has underperformed a bit recently. But actually, less than 15% of their sales are tied to U.S. residential housing. Much more important are sectors like autos, aerospace, engineering. Their biggest single exposure is actually to utilities which is growing especially fast at the moment with the shift to green energy. So we think it's probably overemphasized how important the U.S. housing market is to Tektronic. The pro segment is their biggest segment. It's much more profitable than than DIY. So we're careful not to overemphasize how important U.S. housing is uh, to this company.
1: I'll just add that we're a big user as well of expert networks. That's a key part of our Uh, research process. We don't rely very much on sell side or broker research. Their focus tends to be too short term. And there's some distortions that we think makes that research less valuable than people realize. So virtually all of the research process for all of the companies that we invest in is conducted
0: in-house. One more question about Tektronic. What do you think about uh, a normalization after COVID. It seems like in 2020, for example, a lot of people in North America were were stuck at home. They started off renovating their porches or whatever or something to do that brought forward a lot of demand. And now that might be normalizing. Do you think of that as a uh, risk for the company? It remains to be seen,
1: but there's a few things that give us some comfort here. And I have to also go back to Cameron's point that Exposure to residential housing is much less than people realize here. But if you look at forward intentions today for to renovation, that's an all time high. Home Depot actually referenced this index on their recent results call. This index is through the roof. So there is a lag defect. The last time I spoke to Home Depot management, they made this point that these projects, uh, you know, the intention is there, uh, but, you know, US housing is still. Uh, way overdue an upgrade cycle. So, this is probably going to play out over multiple years uh, rather than just the, the bump that we've seen. The other thing is, one of the key drivers, uh, particularly last year, is the application of lithium ion rechargeable battery technology to outdoor tools. So, this is things like lawn care, you know, lawn mowers, leaf blowers, mechanical uh, trimming devices, and so on so there's a completely new category for Tektronic where they're not competing with the likes of Stanley, Black & Decker and Makita, but they're competing with legacy petrol tool companies that just don't have any exposure or capability in lithium-ion tools. Certainly something to watch, whether there was a, some degree of bringing forward a demand because of the pandemic. But I think overall our, our view is that the, Kind of structural underlying growth drivers which is an industry shifting uh, from gas and corded tools to lithium-ion rechargeable tools across many different sectors should underpin continued strong growth
0: so there might be some cyclicality in one segment but overall these structural trends should carry you through and i want to ask again ross you know as a portfolio manager and we've all been through this in the last 12 months this is your largest position the stock is down quite a lot How how do you feel about that? How do you manage it at a visceral level and then also in terms of your portfolio management?
1: The short answer is you buy more as long as you have conviction. When we model the company today, even if you assume a pretty sharp U.S. recession uh, in 2023, which would result in quite a material, let's say, quite a material uh, decline in Tektronix revenue, which is not at all clear. Uh, In fact, the company could be more resilient, but let's just assume a real bear case scenario. We have a recession next year and a decline in the tool industry, and then a slow recovery below what the company has guided to and well below what the company's long-term target is. You still come out uh, with values above the share price. So uh, in this case, we go back, uh, look at the original thesis, stress test the model, really try and understand whether there's something that's, that's gone wrong, whether potentially there's something we're missing. If we come to the conclusion uh, that in fact, the value
0: remains that we buy more, which is exactly what we've been doing. Very good. And how long have you owned Tektronix?
1: We first bought it in 2014.
0: So over the last, uh, what is that? Seven and a half, eight years or whatever. How do you stop yourself from selling? Like, how do you, you know, maintain the discipline of being a long-term investor? Is there some kind of culture or practice within North Cape that allows you to do that? Or yeah, walk me through it. Because over those last seven and a half years, I'm sure there were many times when you felt like maybe now is the right time to sell, but you didn't. How do you help yourself to hold on?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, Philosophically, we're not dissimilar to the to the kind of Buffett-Munger approach. Really great businesses constantly surprise you on the upside. They constantly perform better uh, than you expected. And that's exactly what's happened for Tektronic. If you go back to my model in 2014, and you look at the forecast there, every year the company's done better. And so that model, the numbers are constantly being upgraded. Great businesses with great management teams have a habit of outperforming your expectations. And so if you find this business and you find, and really, again, there's just not that many of these companies. That's why we think being capped at 40 stocks in this vast universe is the right approach. It's a select uh, group of companies that tick all these boxes. The things that we've talked about uh, in this conversation. If you find those rare businesses with a privileged uh, position, yeah, you, you you don't want to set any time frame on your ownership. Effectively, look if Tektronic was trading well above our intrinsic, then of course we would sell it because all businesses have a value, and you don't want to fall in love with a company. And look if the if 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 the industry structure changed away from lithium miner to some new technology unforeseen currently, then we'd need to adjust for that. But as long as that intrinsic value which over time grows as the business allocates capital efficiently and builds shareholder value. As long as that intrinsic value remains above the share price, you don't want to sell. And and, you know, coming back to the previous topic, our turnover is less than 30%. So we see ourselves as owning great businesses rather than stock traders.
2: Yeah, and I think it also goes back to the culture of North Cape. From the start, we've always been, long-term investors. We're benchmarked against the index on a three-year time frame, not annually. And other fund managers are much more focused on the short-term, whether that's quarterly, um, annually. So they're much more likely to jump in and out and miss out on the long-term benefits of the, the compounding uh, that a company like Tentronic can do. And we think that's one of our key advantages uh, over our competition. Often you go into conferences and have meetings with management, most of our competitors are just focused on the next quarter, and it's, it's very noisy, and I think it's quite hard to predict what a company's earnings are, or at least harder than figure out what, what's going to happen with this company in the long run, are its competitive advantages getting stronger. That's always been the culture of North Cape, and we think it's to our advantage.
0: Well, it certainly comes through in your results that it's a formula which has worked well. So congratulations on building something so special. Gentlemen, we've... Uh Certainly gone past uh, your allocated time. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I've learned so much from you and, and really enjoyed our conversation. If any of the listeners would like to get in touch or follow what you're writing and thinking, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Uh, so if you go to our website, which is uh, northcape.com.au, then there's an email address there where you can contact us. That's probably the best way for our investors. We publish a very detailed monthly newsletter where we talk about stocks that we're interested in investing in we talk about countries for example we mentioned earlier that korean election we we wrote a big piece on Yoon when he was elected so every month we write on some interesting dynamic in emerging markets
0: Mm. fantastic all right ross cameron thank you again so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you
2: enjoyed it thank you very much thanks a lot
0: if you enjoyed this conversation, please do subscribe to the podcast for past and future episodes. I think you'll enjoy my blog too at www.longriverinv.com. And if you'd like to get in touch on Twitter, you can find me at LongRiver_HK. underscore HK. Until next time, safe investing.